You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. The time is 10 to 6. This is the voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh to all our listeners. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. It is Sunday the 12th of March 2023. You're listening to Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile and online 24 hours a day. Broadcasting live from the Bethel Fatou Mosque in Morden. The Weekend World Show, the current affairs show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective. Promoting the message of peace and unity. Discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and spirituality. The message of Islam for the West. To join and share your views, why not phone us on 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. My co-host for the show is Waleed Ahmed, the Chief Librarian of the Bethel Fatou Mosque here in Morden. Good morning. Assalamu alaikum, Waleed. How are you? Peace and blessings to you. Assalamu alaikum, yes. I'm in a disarray. My weekend has been, you know, Oh, really? really mixed up, yes. No <laughs> okay. football focus, no, no fo- final score. Oh, uh, unrecognizable match of the day. Oh, dear. And, you know, I know the BBC are looking for uh, for presenters. Yeah. Not a call from them either. I haven't received a call yet. <laughs> yeah. But I, I would I would not present match of the day, I don't think. Uh, no, solidarity. Uh, that's right, because I might have certain views which I want to mm. air and yeah. which they won't let me do. So, mm. so I think... Uh, I might not need to apply for that. Okay. Uh, but, but, but we will discuss him. We will discuss that okay. topic. Yeah, um, it's very yeah. I mean, it's been covered by very extensively. Very it? extensively. Yeah. I mean, there were programs, I think, on some channels all day, mm. just covering that topic, which yeah. is, I think, a bit... Uh, you think it's overblown? A bit overblown, mm. definitely. And, and uh, we'll look into that, actually. Okay. Uh, but uh, loads of, uh, a thought for you to ponder over. This is what Albert Einstein said. This is on freedom of speech. But laws alone cannot secure freedom of expression. In order that every man may present his views without penalty, there must be a spirit of tolerance in the entire population. <laughs> there's no, there's no uh, patience at all or tolerance at the moment, is there, from the public? No, no it doesn't seem to be. No, because no. There, is, uh, there is this restriction on, on, on view. Yeah. I mean, we are going to discuss it in the news review, but your initial thoughts on, uh, well, obviously, do you agree with Einstein there? And number two, what, what is freedom of speech? Are there rules or you can say anything you want? Well, there there has to be there have to be some guidelines regarding the expression of freedom of uh, speech. You can't uh, engage in insults, and uh, you can't be irresponsible with uh, with what you say. Um, but other than that, uh, when you bring in sports presenters and uh, people of that nature, um, then uh, I think that um, in this context. Um, Freedom of uh, I mean, responsible use of this uh, freedom should be allowed. But what I think, uh, I know we're going to discuss this later on, but what uh, uh, I think is also at the heart of this is uh, one is double standards by the BBC and the other is about um, uh, what is in the contract that uh, the offending uh, individual has mm. actually signed. Mm. I mean, does he actually uh, give away his right to express his views on other subjects when he 
is uh, is engaged uh, with um, when he's employed by by the corporation. Yeah. And the other thing about it is that whether what he said was right or wrong. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. that's another question yeah. we we yeah. will try to look into. But the other thing is the Islamic value on this, the Islamic teaching on this is that. Uh, I think the chronic verse says that uh, do not insult God of others lest they out of ignorance mm. insult Allah, mm. right? Mm. Now, that I think is probably the best guideline I have mm. seen on free speech, mm. that you have the right to say it, but why say things that will antagonize people? Yes. Why say yes. things that that will breed hatred or a reaction which mm. is not cohesive to a good society mm. and that is what that verse is about mm. yes. and that's what freedom of speech should all, always be about should it not yes absolutely and there's another verse which talks about not deriding another people uh, because uh, you know you think you're better than them um, so there's that verse as well so there's good guidelines in the holy quran as to how uh, you should we can nav- navigate through this uh, particular freedom but it has to come with certain guidelines, uh, no derision, no insults. Indeed. But, but if you are um, expressing a view in uh, in a in a reasonable de- way uh, in a uh, in a in a debate, then that that is uh, should be um, should be permitted. In, indeed, it is. Uh, well, anyway, uh, lots to discuss in the show. Um, what's in store this morning? Well, uh, following the news review, we will have our Faith in Focus segment where we unravel the life and challenges faced by the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, the Promised Messiah, Hazrat Mizar Ghulam Ahmed. Um, so I shall be continuing on his claims and what sort of opposition he faced amidst his claim to be the Promised Messiah and reformer of the time. Yes, and after the 11 o'clock news? Well, the Ukraine war, uh, as we're seeing, uh, is uh, not coming to any sort of an end. Uh, and uh, we are past a year now after Russia invaded, uh, and there is uh, uh, after uh, invaded after uh, fears of expansion of NATO. Mm. So uh, Dr. Gval will uh, be uh, on, and uh, we'll get his views, uh, and including that of his own as the head of the fifth head and fifth caliph of the Ambi Muslim community. Uh, as to what he said in his speech at the peace symposium held here at Battlefield last Saturday amidst a host of ministers, MPs and other senior officials. Indeed he will, and uh, we'll see what was said and uh, what uh, Dr Iqbal sees is the way forward. Uh, And sports? Uh, Yes, it's the International Women's Week. Uh, It's being celebrated worldwide and a topic often debated uh, rights of women in Islam. So uh, sports, I think we're looking at. Is that what it is? <laughs> the next bit. Oh, I thought you were asking about community news. I'm so sorry. All right, uh, sports. Uh, well, Shahid will be joining us, having uh, returned from uh, uh, South Africa. We took the opportunity to take the glimpse of uh, to take the glimpse of the South African versus uh, West Indian uh, Test series, and of course his comments on how uh, was <laughs> match of the day without the commentary. 
as well as the rest of the Premiership uh, Premiership ski games. I understand the same is happening in Match of the Day too, as well uh, uh, this evening. It, oh right, okay, yes, yes okay, yes. Yeah, that's uh, the latest. Well, until they solve the situation, I think not much is going to yeah. move forward. So yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that, William. Inshallah, interesting show here in store for our listeners. Anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile and live or live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. Right, we'll move on to our first segment of the show, which is the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. Right, Walid. Uh, hmm. Gary Lineker, we've been discussing him. Impartiality row, row, row sorry, leads to, a f- to fresh calls for BBC chairman to resign. This is from the BBC itself. Uh, pressure is growing on BBC chairman Richard Sharp to resign amid the Gary Lineker impartiality row. Liberal Democrat leader Sir Ed Davies said the presenter's suspension has shown failure at the top. Mr. Sharp's appointment is being investigated over his relationship with Boris Johnson. He denies wrongdoing. What else do they say? Yes, ex-BBC head Greg Dyke said the Sharp allegations had helped fuel the perception the corporation bowed to government pressure on Lineker. Fresh questions are being asked about Mr. Sharp's position in light of another impartiality row involving match with the day host uh, Lineker. Yes, Lineker's suspension for his criticism of the language used around the government's asylum policy and lightening its rhetoric to Nazi Germany triggered an impromptu walkout by BBC sports staff that has taken TV and radio coverage off air. Meanwhile, Tim Davey, the Director General, has ruled out when asked if he will resign over the incident. He replied, absolutely not. I think my job is to serve license fee uh, payers and deliver a BBC that is really focused on world-class, impartial, landmark output. Mm, Is he doing that? That's the question. Mm. (laughs) So uh, let's hear what uh, the Sky Sports editor, Kavis Solhikol, uh, summarized in the situ- in this situation. But a lot of people are looking at this and saying, how come Andrew Neil, uh, one of the most high-profile political journalists and interviewers uh, on the BBC for many, many years, how come he is allowed to be the chairman of a right-wing magazine, The Spectator? How come he is allowed to express political opinions on Twitter as much as he wants? How come the chairman of the BBC, Richard Sharp, the chairman, is somebody who donated £400,000 to the Conservative Party, someone who has helped arrange an £800,000 loan for the former Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson. How come Robbie Gibb, or as we have to call him, Sir Robbie Gibb, who used to be the communications director for the former Prime Minister, Theresa May, how come he's on the BBC board at the moment? Why is Alan Sugar allowed to say what he wants on Twitter about political matters? Uh, What about Jeremy Clarkson? He's got a column in The Sun. He's got a column in The Sunday Times. He was on the BBC. He frequently expressed uh, political opinions, which many people think are extreme, on social media. And why is the Director General of the BBC, Tim Davey, the Director General? He used to be the Deputy Chairman of the Hammersmith and Fulham Conservative Party. He's a man who's stood as a candidate in local elections for the Conservative Party. 
So why is all this allowed, yet Gary Lineker is not allowed to make a fairly innocuous comment which many, many people would agree with about a policy that has been condemned by the United Nations and also by many human rights groups. And this is the same Gary Lineker who's been allowed on the BBC to criticize the human rights record of Qatar. Why is he not allowed to criticize the human rights record of the country he lives in? Sorry, a very strong point made by Alistair, uh, by Kevin uh, Solel from uh, Sky Sports and um, making some very powerful points. Uh, also, Alistair Campbell has been asked as well because uh, he's uh, a broadcaster now and uh, was uh, Director of Communications under Tony Blair. This is what he had to say. But the truth is that I defend the BBC. I think the BBC is fundamentally important to, the, to this country and our strength as a democracy. And what has happened today is, I'm afraid, the consequence of creeping right-wing authoritarianism in this country. The people who should be leaving the BBC are not Gary Lineker, not Ian Wright, not Alan Shearer, Richard Sharp, the chairman, the Tory donor, the friend of Sunak, the man who arranges loans for Boris Johnson, Robbie Gibb, the man who used to work in that building where you are, Mark Milbank, and run BBC political coverage and be perfectly happy for people to be saying that the BBC was full of left-wing pinkos while he was campaigning for Brexit and campaigning for the Tories, then goes to work for Theresa May, now back on the board. And Anna is absolutely right. This is pandering, cowering in the face of right-wing extremism. We have a right-wing, extreme, authoritarian fringe in the Conservative Party that has got a grip of Sunak, that got rid of Theresa May, that got in Johnson, that got in Truss. And the, who's next? Who's next? Da as she said, David Attenborough. His programme's being watered down because they're so, worried about what the, the right wing are going to say about climate change. But, Alan Sugar, who tweeted some vile things about Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader. Now, I would defend his right to do that. But what's the difference? The difference is that this government and their wretched right-wing rags who support them, their propaganda but, arm like the Mail, the Express, etc., they've created a fuss loud enough for the BBC right. to go, oh, no. There we have it. Very strong words. Uh, welcome, Danian, uh, to the Weekend World Show as our co-presenter. Uh, we're discussing the news review uh, and the topic which is on all the media coverage at the moment is on this issue around Gary Lineker's tweet. Uh, really, the tweet itself, mm. it says that this is, uh, this is what Gary Lineker had tweeted. This is just an immeasurable, cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in a language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. And um, an arm out of order is questioning. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's, what, he, what the issue is, is about the government policy, nothing else, about the government policy on uh, the immigration, the asylum seekers, where they want to uh, return this boat, make it illegal for people to, uh, to apply for asylum almost, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question is, uh, what he said, was it wrong by comparing... Uh, comparison of uh, what was said um, to Germany. Uh, what are your initial thoughts? Well, my initial thoughts are that what he's trying to express, as I see it, and this is what I would understand, is that um, 
he is uh, discrediting the language that it is used. It's inflammatory. That's basically what he's saying. Mm. And it's, he was saying that when we use language like that, this is what I understand, then you are on a slippery sto- slope yeah. to uh, doing much more than what the language suggests. It's a slippery slope, mm-hmm. and it, and we should be very careful. And is there any reference to the type of language he's talking about that has been used by Suela Breverman or the Tory party, far right, people like Priti Patel and their policies? Are there so any examples of that? Well, uh, I think he was, uh, what I think he was uh, reacting to was um, the blowing up of all proportions, out of all proportions, about the uh, the challenge we face. She mm. was talking about millions, if not billions of people. Hundreds arrived. of, she said hundreds of millions yes, could arriving. be coming in. Then she changed it to billions of people, mm. number one. Number two, she used the words like swamped, mm. right? Right. Number three, that we are being invaded, you know, mm. and, and there were lots of languages like that. Mm. So what he was trying to say mm. is that that sort of language is used purely mm. to incite the public to hatred yes. of these people. Right. Right. So that's what he's talking about. Now, I've looked up uh, what sort of propaganda was used by mm. Hitler and his party before coming Mm-hmm. to the government because he's referring to the 30s and not the 40s mm. which is when the holocaust happened right but the holocaust was the follow-up yes. to this rhetoric that they had built up this propaganda is that slippery slope that's yeah. slippery slope yeah. right mm. now the holocaust encyclopedia mm-hmm. this is an authority on what has gone on with the holocaust mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a fantastic piece of research in there and stuff mm-hmm. in there to find out what happened in the Holocaust. this is what they wrote about the propaganda of Germany's in the 30s. Not the Holocaust, not directly of Hitler, mm. but of what the German government or the, the build-up to taking over right. and what they went, intend to do. This is what they, these are the sort of things they wrote. There were several audiences for Nazi propaganda. Mm-hmm. Germans were reminded of a struggle against foreign enemies and Jewish subversions during periods preceding legislation or executive measures against Jews. Now, this is very important, this mm. slide. Propaganda campaigns created an atmosphere of tolerance of violence against Jews, particularly in 1935. Mm. Propaganda also encouraged passivity and acceptance of impending measures against Jews. This is exactly what is being looked at here by, by Breverman and, and, her, mm. and, and her cohorts. And these appear to depict the Nazi government as stepping in and restoring order. Right. Now, I, I, I see a lot of resemblance. Mm, mm. And Alistair Campbell says that there's, there's nothing wrong with that comparison. Right. And I think Piers Morgan has also said that mm. he agrees with that comparison. Mm, mm. So there are people who think there is a comparison, and certainly the Holocaust Encyclopedia seem to think it as well. Mm, mm. So have the have they got it wrong? That they, I, I understand fully that you can't compare what's happening to the Holocaust itself. That is absolutely absurd, stupid, because the Holocaust was a, a dire uh, a tragedy of what mm-hmm. happened to the Jewish people. One of the worst of its kind. There were other... Holocaust as well, but that was one of the key ones in Europe. 
Yes, but it's what we're talking about is the kind of language used that leads up to that kind of philosophy. Exactly. Right. And this is what this <coughs> encyclopedia is saying, mm. that it's the build-up of this language, and if you mm. don't put it in check, mm. we might end up there. Yeah. He's, he's fearful of that. And mm. I think that's what Gary Lineker is trying to say. Yeah. So that's that's the the merits of what he said. So that's what we're discussing. Mm. Uh, whether he should have said it or not is another question, because as I mentioned mm. earlier, is that uh, has he signed an agreement that prevents him from making any comments that are political? So when you when you examine that, then uh, you have to then examine the attitude of the BBC. Indeed. That it picks and chooses what kind of political comments can be made. It allowed him to make comments against uh, Qatar. Yes. Right. But and sanctioned by the BBC. Yes. Not only did, did they uh, sanction uh, sanction it, but sorry, not only did they allow him to say it, mm. but they actually sanctioned it. Mm. They yes. actually endorsed it. Yes. Endorsed it. Yes. yes. Yes, they did. Yep. And uh, they're tolerating uh, comments, political comments, by other uh, commentators or other uh, BBC, uh, The BBC presenters. And, and, uh, Alan Sugar was Al, Alan Sugar's been mm. mentioned. Mm. I believe... Um, uh, was it Andrew Neal? Andrew Neal has, yes. has been mentioned mm. because he... I mean, Andrew Neal's show mm. was all about his personal opinions. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, and on air. Yeah. So mm. he was allowed to do it. So, um, yes, there's a lot of uh, double standards and, uh, and uh, questions that, mm. that are raised. So okay. They're, they're two separate issues, I think. They are. They, they are I agree. Mm. I mean, I, I think the, the, the lesser one is about mm. uh, Lineker being taken off. Mm. But the greater one mm. is whether this comparison is comparable or not. Mm. Right? Yes. And, and, and have the Tory party pressurized. There's 35 Tory MPs or more mm. who are asking for his head or at least an apology from mm. Gary Lineker, right? Mm. And we know that both the chairman and the director general are, have both been uh, contributors to the Tory party. Mm. Uh, £400,000, I think the chairman um, mm. uh, has contributed, Mr. Sharp. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tim Davy has been a member of the Tory party. Um, so the question is, were they pushing the agenda for the Tory party. Yeah. yeah. And that, if that yeah. is the case, mm. where's the impartiality? Mm. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Um, that's, that's very true. Yeah. Very true. And, and the other thing that we ought to ask the question uh, is that about BBC's impartiality is every time the incident about Israel and Palestine, for example, is heavily biased towards Israel. You know, if there's an innocent killing of a, of a, a Palestinian, it's hardly ever covered on the BBC. Mm. As soon as an Israeli uh, soldier is attacked by the Palestinians or by Hamas, it's all over the news. Mm. And mm. and uh, we have uh, the ambassador of Palestine who regularly comes on Channel 4 and, and he says, why do you always call me when there's an Israeli killing? Why haven't you called me when there's a Palestinian killing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the BBC... Do not have an answer. Don't, don't, don't heed to it. No. Uh, so I, I question BBC's impartiality sometimes. Mm, mm. Uh, not that mm. BBC is not a credible broadcaster. Of course they are. They're, mm. they're, they're probably the least 
biased in any uh, news broadcaster that mm. we know. Yeah. But certainly at times that they, they're not. And they're, so there are double standards to be answered. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Are, you, are you heartened by the, by the reaction of the other uh, presenters uh, to uh, Gary Lineker? Well, uh, I think uh, <laughs> um, uh, Ian Wright led the way. Mm. That as uh, soon as the news was announced about Gary Lineker, he immediately... Uh, announced that he would not stand, and then Alan Shearer mm. followed up, and then Alex Scott followed up, and then mm. Michael Richard and Jermaine Janus, and then uh, we also had the, um, uh, the uh, on behalf of the commentators uh, Steve Wilson. Mm. Uh, he wrote out, uh, put out a tweet that as commentators of MOTD, we have decided to step down for tomorrow's night's broadcast. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great sign of solidarity, and mm. I think. The BBC did not expect any of this. No, no, I don't think we did either. I think many of us didn't. And I, I and uh, it shows the strength of feeling against what the government is doing against mm. this bill. Mm. I think that uh, that is also very, very clear. That uh, it is not something that uh, the rank and file uh, welcome at all. Mm. Uh, do not feel that it is. Uh, compassionate, it is something that uh, we as a country should identify ourselves with. Rejecting refugees, forbidding them, prohibiting them, preventing them from ever claiming asylum in the future. I think that's just without due process. Mm. That's the point. That's mm. the other point. Just because they've come on boats, yeah. they don't have a right to anything yeah, without yeah. legal process. And that's something that's so unfair. Absolutely. Uh, it's not the country, the mm. compassionate country mm. that. Tories keep using the word compassionate mm. nation, but uh, they seem to be doing everything against that. Daniel, sorry, to, just to bring you into this, uh, I mean, this tweet about comparing it with uh, what the propaganda of the German, uh, I won't say Holocaust, because it, it was well before that, that this uh, propaganda was started that led to the Holocaust. But will it put a stop to the government now and people like Suella Breverman to using this sort of language because I think they've been getting away with it. And if nothing else, this issue has brought that to light. That uh, what, what, And I think this is what Gary Lineker wanted. He wanted to bring out that do not use such language because it will be akin to what the Germans were doing. So do you think it will put a, a check, if not a stop, to how much things they can say now against immigration and asylum seekers? Yes, so I think... Um the word you use there is correct. It's it's more of a check rather than a stop, and and the reason it's kind of it kind of seems inevitable that it was bound to happen at some point because the lines of freedom of expression and freedom of speech are so blurred in this Western society at mm, the moment mm. that um, it's pretty subjective um, what it really is. So if I say something which I consider to be correct, yeah. politically correct, you might not agree with me. But who's to stop me from saying it, right? Because freedom, I can just uh, quote freedom of expression. Yeah. But then you could say something which I might find extremely offensive. Mm. And through certain media outlets or governmental bodies, I'm able to put a restraint on you for saying that. Or at least, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. put a red flag there. That, yeah, you said this and, and this isn't correct to say. So I think we've... Uh, uh, Hazur Anwar, the Khalifatul Masih of our community, he's been... He's holding us as a Muslim, as yes, the fifth caliph, yeah. He's been constantly talking about this whole issue that freedom of expression um, does not equal to freedom of hate speech. Mm. You know, there need to be some boundaries. And one way or the other, um, this is my personal opinion, one mm. way or the other, this was going to come to light and 
something was going to happen. Yeah. So yeah, it was inevitable. Absolutely. Uh, and that's something we were discussing earlier in our show, weren't we, about mm. what the Islamic presenting guidelines... presenting him much of the day. <laughs> <laughs> about the Zeus guidelines or Islam's guidelines on oh, freedom yes. of speech. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and, and just to finish this off, Walid, uh, back in the mid-80s, if you remember the late 80s, do you remember the fatwa against uh, Salman Rushdie? Yes. Okay. And, and there's a whole hullabaloo about freedom of speech, right? I was actually very... Uh, I, I, it, was, it was at that time that I got into politics, I think. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a letter to the then newspaper called Today. I don't know if... Do you remember that? Oh, paper? Yes, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it finished yeah, after yeah. some years. Maybe I wrote into mm. it, that's fine. Mm. Uh, but uh, I Not wrote... Not because you wrote the letter. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But I wrote to them and they published my letter. Um, mm-hmm. And I said that in freedom of speech, uh, why don't the same rules apply in Parliament? Because in Parliament, you cannot abuse other MPs, you cannot abuse other people. Uh, so why should anyone be allowed to abuse the Holy Prophet of Islam because he's followed by so many people, etc.? Um, so I put, uh, it was a question I put. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, I th- and I think it's that same thing which Daniel has just said. But the... You know, where do you go with freedom of speech? Do you, is it open to abuse of others? Of course not. So there must be rules around freedom of speech. It does not mean carte blanche, just say whatever you want. Mm. Exactly, Hassan Saban. If I may just add quickly, um, even over 100, what is it, 30 years ago, mm. the Promised Messiah, Islam, the founder of this movement, he... Um, wrote to the government at the time. Uh, Ahmed, the founder of the Muslim community. That's yep. right. Yeah. He wrote. Um, um, he he wrote a request to the government at the time, uh, when there was a lot of uh, hate speech going on, especially aimed at Islam. Mm. Uh, at the time, and there were public certain publications which were deemed extremely of- offensive, and he suggested as well that you know freedom of ex- expression, you know there is a right for that. Every human has that, but that shouldn't equal to freedom of hate, mm. hate speech, right? Mm. So he requested the government even back then, over a century ago, yeah. that there should be some sort of limits. Not to offend people and not to make hate, make hateful remarks, Indeed. and you know we've been um, championing that ever since. Absolutely, and and the promised Messiah, uh, the Wizard Ramadan, but not only wrote and spoke about it, he actually put it in practice. He wrote the book Pergamisullah, the Message of Peace, where he s- reached out to the Hindu communities, stop abusing the Holy Prophet, and we will not eat beef. If you remember from the from from the cow, yes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so he was ready to put that in correction. That never came through, but it just shows you how much commitment he had towards not abuse of of anyone. Absolutely, and, and it comes down to actually the Quranic verse, the Quranic injunction that where it tells the believers not to offend other believers' gods or uh, idols, yeah. lest they should offend your god as well. God because you know it it well. goes both ways. If yeah, someone's yeah. being offensive, then most likely or not, they're going to be offended as well. Indeed. Yes, we gave reference to that earlier in the show. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Very interesting discussion. So, like like the national TVs, this uh, subject has been indeed uh, interesting and long to talk about. Right, we must move on to our next uh, segment of the show, which is uh, the Faith in Focus. Um, and, uh, Willie, uh, in the early editions of this program, we discussed the claims of the Promised Messiah relating to Prophet Jesus, Hazrat Isa, peace be upon him, and how he had come in his spirit. Today we will discuss some of his other claims and the opposition he had to deal with. So he faced a lot of opposition, as all prophets did, mm. when they come and uh, when they come to change the world. Uh, he, he had also claimed, had he, had he not, to be the Mahdi. Mm. Um, first of all, what is a Mahdi? 
Mm-hmm. What does that, that mean? And what proof did he offer about the truth of his claim? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe Daniel can just highlight what the Mahdi is. What does that mean? Right, so the Mahdi, um, it means the guided one. And we find narrations throughout the 14 centuries of Islamic history of a certain guided imam, the guided imam, Imam Mahdi, mm. um, both in the Sunni traditions and in the Shia traditions um, of an advent of such a person who would come at a time when Islam would be in most need of him um, and he would bring a sort of victory over for Islam and guide the people towards the the pristine teachings of Islam once again. Good. Uh, So, Walid, over to you. Yes. um, Well, um, you asked uh, what proof he offered uh, about the truth of his claim to be a Mahdi. Uh, well, he didn't need to. That proof was provided by the heavens through the eclipses. Ah. And the phenomenon of the Mahdi is relevant to the Muslims and uh, is, is uh, of a reformer that was predicted by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, and uh, the prophecy is as follows, that uh, as far as his, uh, the proof of his advent, uh, it's in Durkutni or Darekutni, and it reads, for our Mahdi, uh, there are two signs which have never occurred before since the creation of the heavens and the earth. Namely, the moon will be eclipsed on the first night in Ramadan uh, and the sun will be eclipsed on the middle day of Ramadan. And uh, these signs have not happened since the creation of the heavens and the earth. So that essentially is the prophecy that is recorded. Uh, now, if the lunar month is, it needs a bit of explanation. If the lunar month is reckoned from the first sighting of the lunar crescent, Mm -hmm. the dates on which a lunar eclipse can occur are the 13th, 14th, and 15th. Okay. And the dates on which a solar eclipse can occur are the 27th, 28th, and 29th. The prophecy thus requires that the lunar eclipse should, remember, is on the first night. So it would be the 13th? Absolutely, 13th. Right. Okay. And the solar eclipse being the middle on the 28th. Okay, yeah. So the prophesied uh, eclipses then occurred over Kavyan as predicted on the specified dates mm-hmm. of Ramazan. The lunar eclipse occurred after sunset on 21st March 1894, and that night was the 13th of Ramazan. And the solar eclipse occurred on the morning of uh, Friday, the 6th of April, and that was the 28th Exactly of as the prophecy said exactly. 1,400 years ago. Yeah, it's, and it's a remarkable, mm. remarkable prophecy. Mm. It should be remembered here that Hazrat Mizagwa Muhammad of Qadiyan was the only claimant to being a Mahdi we know at the time of the eclipses. He had received his revelation regarding his appointment as a divine reformer in 1882, Remember, these occurred in 1894. Uh, and it was in 1891 he claimed on the basis of divine revelation to be the promised Messiah and Mahdi, whose advent was foretold by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He asserted that Almighty God had sent him to give spiritual life to humanity. The eclipses vindicated his claim to be that Mahdi mm. that was prophesied by the Holy Prophet. Yeah. So he then wrote a book, uh, Nurul Haq, Light of Truth, in which he declared that these eclipses were divine signs in support of his claim, and he drew attention in this book to several prop, uh, properties, uh, 
several characteristics of the eclipse which make the signs very very impressive mm-hmm. and it also incidentally i think demonstrates the truth of the of the holy prophet peace be upon him yes you know who would it, have known it's a dual dual yes. uh, yeah and yeah. only are there two eclipses yeah. but it's a prophet fulfillment of two prophecies yeah. of or truth of two prophets uh, or two, yeah. yeah absolutely the other thing is uh, maybe daniel can just mm. throw a little light on that a lot of clerics say oh no no the the holy prophet said the first of its night so it has to be on on the first day of uh, ramadan, ramadan yeah, right yeah. Uh, ramadan is coming we'll all be out there looking for the moon and no and most people will debate well we couldn't see it uh, on that first night because the cloud wasn't there or the, it was too thin to be seen so how could it be the first because all people would so if it was meant to be the first night all people would have to say well no it didn't come out yeah well with that um there's something there's a there's a nuance here that we really need to look at which is that um god almighty so the grand over and over again states that god almighty doesn't change his ways you know um of old and stuff so what that essentially means is that there's obviously the word of god which is the grand and then there's the works of god which is you can call it um nature you can call it uh, whatever you want the laws of physics whatever you want to call them and according to those laws according to those works that god has been practicing since mm. the beginning one of them is that uh, these eclipses occur on certain days right and they've never occurred um apart from those days so there's three allocated days for lunar eclipses and three allocated yeah, days yeah, for so absolutely eclipses. and that's purely because of the physical nature of what the moon and mm. the sun and how the eclipses take place yeah. and it's their positioning yeah. so it can only take place there exactly just yeah. imagine if if the the orbit of the moon or the sun changed ever so slightly mm. um to, for one of these signs to be fulfilled word for word for word yeah. just imagine the colossal effects it would have had on just our planet itself i mean there'd be yeah. floods there'd be so yeah. much catastrophe because that's just not how it no. you know how it works and really just to add to that the 13 14 9th is the position of the moon which is where the earth is in the middle between the sun and the moon mm. and that's why it takes an eclipse can take place yeah. the yeah. earth is blocking the vision so how could it be on the first day absolutely yeah, anyway yeah. let's move on uh, what about the prediction of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace be and blessings of Allah be upon him that the second coming of jesus will be followed by the breaking of the cross and killing of the sign is this a literal prophecy that that is what he's going to do uh, well you've uh, you've answered the question oh, well, yeah. yes <laughs> no last um, the question <laughs> no <laughs> because the objection uh, i mean this is uh, um supposed to be not to be taken literally of course i mean it's absurd if you are taking this literally literally um uh, there is uh, certainly uh, uh, the prophecy of the holy prophet peace be upon him that jesus shall descend among you just uh, as a just ruler he will break the cross and kill the swine and he will put an end to war now uh, to think that a prophet of god will arrive on the earth and instead of reforming humanity or benefiting him through mm. other means he will instead go on a spree of killing pigs and breaking crosses making a mockery of prophethood i mean that's not what prophets do no. the whole meaning is metaphorical uh, the breaking of the cross is pointing to the destruction of the doctrinal belief the belief of christianity this we explained uh, this we explained how it was achieved we've done this in earlier episodes through the writings of the founder of the community in demolishing the fundamentals of christian belief uh, through argument and reason as regards to the killing of the swine this we would argue is relating to immorality and how the second advent of the uh, promised messiah has explicitly dealt with laying the foundations of removing these ills some argue that the bastion of morality is the holy quran 
and the fact that the community established uh, following the advent of the Messiah, the founder of the community, has translated this into more than 70 languages and widely distributed the Holy Scripture is a plank in, in uh, helping humanity to shun immorality and indecency. So that's how we would interpret those phrases. So not in a literal sense, because that would be, as, as I mentioned, would uh, be a mockery, it would be a mockery of what uh, prophets are about and what they do. Indeed. And uh, the breaking of the cross, St. Paul himself said, that had Christ not risen, our faith is in vain. Mm. Uh, so the whole of Christianity, according to St. Paul, which is modern-day Christianity, mm. is all about him resurrecting, having died on the cross. Mm. So promised Messiah by claiming that, they were, by proving that he did not die on the cross, mm. breaks that. And, and Absolutely, and he breaks it very effectively and conclusively using the very scriptures on which uh, Christianity relies on, the Gospels. So using the Gospels and the evidence in the Gospels, he's, he's, been, he's managed to prove that uh, Jesus did not die on the cross. Indeed. Anything, John? Uh, no, that pretty much covers it. I mean, if you imagine a prophet coming and breaking physical crosses, going around the churches and breaking wooden crosses or uh, steel crosses or uh, going around and hunting pigs, that just doesn't fit the... You know the the characteristics of a prophet. No, would it fit the laws of the land? I would have thought. It wouldn't exactly. Yeah. <laughs> In most countries, okay. Um, right, the opponents of the carrying on, Ralid. Hmm. The opponents of the founder of the community also found, uh, also objected to him claiming to be a prophet. Uh, they didn't like him to be calling himself a prophet. Hmm. This is the Muslim clerics, yes, uh, because. Um, what was the reasoning behind that? Well, Why yes, did it I think you were about to say it. Yes, thank you yeah. <laughs> for holding back. Yeah, but um, yes, uh, the, the main uh, point that uh, is that rankles with them is, uh, I think, is based on a misunderstanding of a verse of the Holy Quran. They base the main thrust of the case uh, or their objection to the founder of Islam claiming to be a prophet on this verse of the Holy Quran which translates that Muhammad is not the father of any of your men, but he is the messenger of Allah and the seal, the seal of the prophets, and Allah is, uh, has full knowledge of all things. So when the phrase seal of the prophet is used, Khatam uh, al-Nabiyin, it is interpreted as the last of prophets, according to them, the end of prophets, which other Muslims contend that with the advent of the Holy Prophet, all prophethood has ended. There can be no prophets now after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Now, Hazrat Mr. Ghulam Muhammad, the Promised Messiah, explained that the word Khatam al-Nabiyin, or seal of the prophets, does not mean the last of prophets in time, but symbolizes his excellence such that his seal certifies or ratifies the prophethood of all prophets. To understand the Holy Prophet as the last of prophets may also be acceptable, but not in time, but in excellence as the top, the summit, of prophethood that no one can can excel. And uh, the founder then uh, proceeded to prove this from the Holy Quran. For example, one verse reads that, and uh, this is the translation, whoso obeys Allah and his messenger. So yes, this is very important. Whoso obeys Allah and this messenger, this messenger being the Holy Prophet, the Holy Prophet yeah. shall be among those on whom Allah has bestowed his blessings. So those who believe in Allah and, and the Holy Prophet 
will be bestowed blessings. And the Holy Quran then mentions what those blessings are. Prophethood, the truthful, martyrs, and the righteous. And an excellent company are they. So this evidence is clear that if you are one who obeys Allah and uh, and his messenger, mm-hmm. then you can rise to the standard of martyrs, to the truthful, righteous, and to the standard of prophethood. Uh, so if this is the case that the Quran is saying, then why cannot in time uh, prophets arise after following their belief in the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him? You have put a lot of thoughts there which Mm -hmm. give rise to a lot of questions. Do you mind if I delve into some of them? You can, (laughs) yes. With Daniel here, I'm sure we'll be able to answer. Okay. First question is, being the last prophet, and if you believe that he is the last prophet and no other guidance from God Almighty is going to come, how will God's message which has been so corrupted on earth today we see so many different factions of islam so many different factions of christianity right how are they going to get united if prophet muhammad is the last prophet therefore no more revelation what is their solution what will happen Nadia? well i think the solution um what, is no, what is their solution what, what is the thing will happen how will this world get back to god's right way who's the right way Mm. Yeah. So what they say, <laughs> what they say, yeah. essentially, is that well, first of all, who do we mean by they? The non Ahmadi uh, Muslims? Uh, yeah. In this case, they are the ones who are saying that the, uh, by by being the last prophet, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad cannot be a prophet. Yeah. So their their understanding of the Khatm Nabuwa is so um, different, so difficult to grasp in a sense because. They believe, and rightly so, that the Quran is the last Sharia, right? Mm. It's the last law that God Almighty revealed to and mankind. The, and Allah says that in the Quran that uh, that I have completed your faith for yeah. you, and therefore Islam. Is it, yeah. yeah, and that's the verse that I have completed um, faith for you, and that's fine. We agree with that. Yes. We have no quarrel with that. No. Um, the Quran is the last law of God Almighty. But what where the difference lies now is that they believe by them I refer to the non-Ahmadi Muslims. Um, who haven't accepted the promised Messiah mm. they believe that Isa Islam, Jesus will return the very same Jesus ah so a prophet will come then see that's the thing that's what we that's tell the them. question yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they believe that Jesus is alive in heaven right now and he will return and we naturally ask them that look if that's the case Jesus Islam, was a prophet mm. right so does he come back as a prophet or does he lose his prophethood mm. I mean does he get demoted is that something that God Almighty does and they don't really have an answer to that because they say they, no. They're damned if they do say that he's the last prophet, and Jesus won't be a prophet. And damned if they say yes, he will be a prophet. Exactly. Then it goes contradictory to the final, to the finality of prophethood. Will no, no. But but the the answer they gave is that Jesus was a prophet before. Before. Uh-huh. So no new prophet after him. But that's not the, the, but that's not the, the verse. Of, but that's not the verse of the Quran. It just says that he's the last prophet. Yes. Right. So if, for example. The three of us leave this room. We leave, followed by Daniel and then myself. Mm. And then Daniel comes back in to pick up his phone because he forgot it here. And then the next day we found out that some of the computers have been disrupted and and broken. Mm. And they try to find out who did it. And they'll say, who was the last person? Mm. But Daniel will say it was us because we all left together. Mm. 
But you will then say, hang on, Daniel, you have to go back in mm. to pick up your phone. So you were the last person. Yeah. It's a bit of an argument like that, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah? a logical process. It's, it's it? a, a logical thing to say that an all profit will come. You know, I'm just giving that as an example. Okay, okay. But the the counter would be that you know we we're talking about uh, uh, if you're talking you're talking if you talk differently, mm. talk about presenters, mm-hmm. right? Then uh, then uh, the answer would be different, wouldn't it? Uh, but we're talking about yeah. we're talking about a uh, assignment of authority. Yes. So he has Jesus has been um, been raised to prophethood before the holy prophet yes. be upon him, and he's called yes. as a prophet in the Quran. So that title cannot be taken yes. away, and he will be amongst the prophets. The words that you quoted earlier, and he's outlasted the holy prophet peace be upon him. That, that okay. would be the other argument. Yeah, he's two thousand yeah. years old. Yeah, and then he would be the last prophet. Whether whether mm. Holy Prophet was the last show, law yeah. or not, he would have been the last prophet on okay. earth. So there's a lot of yes. mis misanomies on on this I mean, argument, they, isn't yeah, there? They do, they do try to kind of um, uh, you know find find a way out of this by saying that Jesus wouldn't come back as a prophet, mm. and that doesn't make sense either because that means God Almighty is demoted as the yeah. Islam, and, and it goes and, against. And then how will he be judged on the day of judgment as a prophet or as a non-prophet? Exactly, and it goes against the. Uh, there's a hadith in Sahih Muslim which talks about the return of Jesus. I mean, con- constantly refers to him as Nabiullah, yeah. as uh, yeah. Allah's prophet, and that's actually one of the strong arguments that we use in favor of the prophethood of the Prophet Sahih Islam. Mm. That he was supposed to be Nabiullah. Mm. It's mentioned four times in that one hadith in that, one that hadith, yeah. the Jesus Islam, whoever will come, the second Messiah, yeah. whoever comes will be a nebula. Yeah. And then there's another this that there will be no profit between me and Isa. Yes. Which means that he is <laughs> that Isa will come and he will be a prophet and there will be no one in between yeah. the two. Yeah. Right. Okay. One one more question on this. Right. Uh and we, I mean we got a, a lot to discuss on this and we'll be discussing in the next program mm. uh, the next issue. Uh one more pro- uh, on this verse the way yeah. it says uh, the Quran says that he will not be the father of any of your men but walakin he is the last of prophecies, that's how you explain it. Mm. The promised Messiah has said that the first part of the argument before Walakin says that he will be the la- uh, it'll be the last of the. F- uh, that he's not the father of any of your he's men. He's not the father of any of your men. In other words, that there will be no more uh, uh, continuation of his progeny, right? Mm-hmm. But he'll be the last prophet. Right, so the the word walakin contradicts the first part. When when you have yes, walakin, yes, it yes. should contradict the yes. second part of the argument. Yes. Here, the promise was says that he says, "I'm not the last. Uh, I'll be the last of your uh, progeny, mm-hmm. right? And I'll be the last prophet." Walakin would then therefore be the wrong word to be used. Yeah. So this seems yeah. it could be a, a fault with the Quran if you yeah. explain it that way. Yes, yeah. no, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, you 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 hit the nail on the head. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, again, it's a very important word. It, it is a very be, important it word. It should, um, if we are going to take the same meaning as the non ahmadi Muslims uh, suggest, then Walakin should be replaced by just Wa. Wa. And? And uh, not Walakin should yeah. not be there. Yeah. So it does mean that has, there is an opposite there. There's an opposite, yeah. So uh, there is a... Uh, so there's no progeny after me, but there will be prophets after me. It yeah, is the, the logical explanation. But I, he is the best of prophets. But he's the and he's and, the best of prophets. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's the door through which other prophets mm. or other prophets can can uh, can come through. Okay.
Uh, one more question, Vilith. Yeah. Um, Mr. Gramama made it clear that his own profit was due to his belief in the Holy Prophets. Uh, give that a bit more. Yes. So, yeah, so there, there's a couple of uh, writings or extracts from his writings. See, um, he did uh, stress time and again that his nearness to God and no doubt the blessing of prophethood was due to the obedience and love of the Holy Prophet. And he wrote, he says, I say truly that I do so based on my experience that none can truly act virtuously attain uh, the pleasure of Allah the Exalted, nor derive benefit from these rewards, blessings, profound wisdoms, truths, and visions which are acquired at the highest stage of purification of the soul until he subjugates himself in following the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Furthermore, evidence of this, of this is found in the very words of God the Exalted as he states, if you love uh, Allah, follow me, then will Allah love you. Follow me, me being the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The promised Messiah says, I am a practical and living proof of this statement in this age and era, Allah the Exalted shares communion with me as I have immersed myself in the being of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and have followed him completely. Subsequently, Allah Exalted, uh, Allah the Exalted showed his affection towards me. And in other words, he says, man cannot become uh, God's beloved and deserving of his nearness with any of his self-devised spiritual exercises and efforts. The divine splendor of blessings cannot descend on anyone until a person is completely absorbed in the obedience of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. A person who loses himself in the love of the Holy Prophet and endures every type of sacrifice receives the radiance of faith that liberates him from everything other than God and delivers him from sins and becomes a source of salvation. He lives a virtuous life in this world and is rescued from the narrow and dark graves of carnal passions. This is mentioned in a hadith where the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that I am the one to raise up the dead and they will be revived through me. Um, so His Holiness uh, said quite clearly, uh, sorry, his, uh, uh, the promised Messiah, the founder of, this, of the Amdi Muslim community, uh, says quite clearly, I mean, it's quite evident from these passages that the prophethood that the promised Messiah that he claimed was derived from his obedience to the Holy Prophet and was certainly not one that brought a teaching in any way distinct from that that was delivered by the Holy Prophet of Islam. Mm -hmm. So no change in, in in the teaching that is been brought, but certainly prophethood continues. Indeed. And, and as a result of that, uh, he was there to defend Islam in all its ways and means. Yeah. And anyone who attacked Islam, he would defend Islam yes. by uh, having discussions and debates with them. And we'll cover a lot of those uh, issues that he confronted mm. and how he confronted them in the, the next uh, show. Inshallah. Yes, inshallah. Yeah, thank yeah. you very much. Jazakallah. Uh, we are coming up to the 11 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Apologies for that. Uh, welcome back to our listeners. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Views of the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Uh, we're coming up to our next segment of the show, which is Behind the Headlines. Just been called for Donald The decision taken to join the common market has been the reversed. should call a general election. Order. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the Headlines. 
Allah says in chapter 49, Surah Hujarat, verse 10, And if two parties of believers fight against each other, make peace between them, and if after that one of them transgresses against the other, fight the party that transgresses until it returns to the command of Allah. Then if it returns, then it, if it returns, make peace between them with equity and act justly. Verily, Allah loves the just. Uh, Sky News say that Ukraine war later says that hundreds killed in deadly 24 hours in fight for Bakhmut, Kherson, and the most constant Russian bombardment. Mm. What do they report? They report that hundreds of troops have been killed in a deadly 24 hours in the uh, fight for Bakhmut, uh, according uh, to claims by both Ukraine and Russia. A small river that runs through the eastern city is believed to be the current front line as Kremlin forces continue to attack, make attack after attack on Ukrainian defensive replacements. Yes, Serev uh, Cherevatia of the Ukrainian military spokesman said on Saturday that two, two, 221 pro-Moscow troops were killed and more than 300 wounded. Meanwhile, Russia's defense minister said that up to 210 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in the broader Donetsk pass of the front line. Uh, seems like they want to talk about how many they've killed. You know, mm. there seems to be no empathy of human life to me. In, in, and wars, unfortunately, I like, uh, I like that. And when, when we heard the Iraq war and the other wars, it was about killing. How many we've killed? How many we've killed? And you know, here's is a one says we've killed so many of the opposition, and the other is countering that we've killed so many of theirs. You know, what about the human life? What about the losses? I know that? it's it's very dehumanizing. It's when they do that. Yeah. But interesting on the in the Iraq war, yeah. they wouldn't even give numbers. Yes. They refused to give numbers yeah. of uh, Iraqi casualties. Uh, and most of them were civilians. And most of the, and that was just collateral damage. Yeah. Yeah. It was called as so, yeah, dehumanization, and uh, in in that instance, it was not even they weren't even worthy of be, uh, yeah. of being described in in figures. Mm. And and this is you know the propaganda. Mm. <laughs> yes, we talked about propaganda earlier in the discussion about partiality yeah, of the BBC. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, joining us from the cold winds of Yorkshire Dales, but hopefully bringing a warm front to this very depressing news is Dr. Iqbal, who presents the Living History Program on Voice of Islam and covers many aspects of world politics and wars. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Iqbal. Wa alaikum salam, Hassan and Waliz. Thank you very much for joining us uh, once again, Dr. Iqbal. This, oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, th th there seems no end to this horrid war as more lives are lost on all fronts. And as we just, me and Waliz just commented, uh, just the dehumanization of va values of human beings. And yet no one seems to be talking about how to end it all. All the, uh, Why are the West and the Russians so war-hungry? 
It's a real tragedy for the Ukrainian people and to many extent uh, the Russian uh, people as well. After all, those soldiers, whether they're Ukrainian or Russian, you know, they have uh, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and uh, the loss is quite uh, enormous. Um, I, it is very, very sad. I think there was some hope recently when the Chinese had said that they would come up with a peace plan. And they did present a 12-point 12, 12 peace plan, but uh, uh, the West rejected it uh, very well straight uh, away. And uh, I think it would have been difficult for the Russians to stomach it as well because um, it involved giving up some territory. But um, there we are, you know. Um, I think the reality is, though, that uh, there's only going to be one winner out of this conflict, and that will be Russia. Uh, if the NATO countries decide to intervene directly, uh, maybe we might have a different outcome. But the stupidity of this is, though, that the, the NATO countries, I mean, even Macron yesterday, you know, um, he was saying again, like the other NATO countries, that, you know, in this conflict, Russia must be defeated, etc., etc. Well, if you speak in that language, then you can't end the war, can you? It's impossible. And Russia is not a small country. Um, or an insignificant country like Libya or Iraq um, or Serbia. This is a major nuclear power, a major country that has fought wars over its history and won decisively. Mm. So it's stupid talk, really. I think the Russians would have wanted a, a peace deal, but uh, it's been rejected. So I'm not trying to be biased in any way, but I think... Um, there is uh, there is sheer stupidity at such level. But ultimately, there'll only be one winner, and that'll be Russia. The West might disagree with uh, with that, but it seems like uh, that the Europeans, um, this includes Britain, whether they like it or not, they are Europeans. They're in the mm. continent of Europe. The USA uh, and Russia is part of Europe. It's it's an issue for them. The, the war, nearly all the war seems to involve them: be it Vietnam, Iraq, Syria, Bosnia. I mean, we've even spoken about World War One and World War Two. Why is the West? Are the Europeans so uh, war hungry, and you know, do they not value human life, or is it all about attaining power and land and resources? I think that's the bottom of it all, isn't it? Well, this is the stupidity of it all. You know, I mean, if you go back to the peace symposium that our beloved Azur uh, gave the uh, lecture. He said, look, whatever the rights and wrongs of Russia, um, whatever wrongs they may have done, if peace is to be negotiated, then you, you, you have to stop talking about continuing war and making uh, the, the other sort of the enemy uh, defeated, etc. So, you know, this is the sheer stupidity. At the end of it, look, who does it matter to more in terms of which way this war goes? This war is existential to the Russian state because it's on their border. The USA is thousands and thousands of miles away from Ukraine and the Russians. So it's not existential for the uh, Western world and even for Britain. It's an island, for God's sake, miles away. And that's the second loudest cheerleader, mm. you know, for, for the war. Even France, 
look at how many states there are in between as buffer states between France and um, you know Russia and Germany was the most reluctant one but even they've got no so the ones that are the keenest to push for war continuously are the Polish and the Baltic states uh, even the Hungarians you know they're saying look enough is enough let's have uh, peace so realistically Russia cannot afford to lose this war because it is their border on the other hand, Europe has got buffer states, and in reality, you know, the Russians were betrayed, and they were lied to with the expansion of NATO. Everybody knows that. Any unbiased historian, commentator would know that. But regardless of that, the war started, and it needs to stop, and the only way it will stop is by some sensible negotiations. And, you know, for since 2014, the Russians had tried to do it sensibly through the Minsk Accords 1-2, and they were lied to, and the French and the Germans have admitted to it that, you know, those accords didn't mean anything. So, in many ways, as some commentators said, Russia was provoked into this war, it started, and now they're not going to give up eastern Ukraine, the Donbass area, and something sensible has to be drawn out for a peace plan, but uh, I don't see that happening until there is ultimate victory for one side or the other. You seem to say that there's a line being drawn and one party and the other party are not going to cross that and there's no way at this moment in time of any solution. And, and, and the West made much of a hullabaloo about the Saudi Arabians and the Iranians at conflict and you know, highlighting uh, peace will never be attained there and uh, these are the divisions and Iran is on the wrong side, etc., etc. But we've just seen a landmark peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran and with the help of the Chinese, of all people, who tried to stop, as you just mentioned, the, this particular war. Uh, but it was rejected, it seems, by particularly by the, the, the West. So this is, without doubt, will enlighten the tensions, will lighten the, attention, the tensions in that area. I'm sure something U.S.-Israel particularly are not very happy about, uh, Saudi and Iran uh, making peace. I think this has been one of the most amazing developments, you know. Everybody, the Western world in particular, have talked about the rivalries between the Shias and the Sunnis. And, you know, they've encouraged the fighting. If you remember even the Iraq-Iran war, right, the, the, the Western world, right, they encouraged Iraq to invade Iran and they supplied weapons or whatever. And guess what? They were also supplying the weapons to the Iranians to keep the fighting going. I mean, that is the duplicity and the hypocrisy. And then, uh, of course, that wasn't just a war between Iraq and Iran. The, the, you know, the Saudis were the biggest backers through you know, the United States, etc. So the West has always had this divide and rule, which is a disgraceful policy. On the other hand, the Chinese have come along, you know, and look, within a few years, they've got the Iranians and Saudis talking together. I mean, how amazing is that? It's really so encouraging. And that's what I think the Chinese want to do, because their view is that, look, let's build bridges and have prosperity for all our populations. And it's an amazing story what they've done for their own country. And that's what can be done if you have peace. And in many ways, the Russians also have wanted to do that. To be honest, they've encouraged this sort of... Um, peace talks between the Indians and the Chinese as well, and you'll have noticed how India now has become so close to Russia, and the West is really annoyed. And the reason for that is because it was the Russians that mediated between the Chinese and the Indians 
and now there's a sort of strong alliance being formed, um, you know, as part of those BRICS countries, the, the RICS, which is Russia, India, and China. And then there are many, many other countries like Mexico, um, uh, Algeria, Saudi Arabia even, you know, wanted to join the BRICS countries. So there is a really encouraging development of countries wanting to come together mm. and, uh, you know, work towards peace and prosperity. And the West always seems to be annoyed about this when countries are coming together. I, I just don't understand it. Mm. I don't think the population of the West feels like that, but it's just some of these war hawks in Western countries that want to push that, including in the media. Yeah, well, I think you wanted to yes, come in. Dr. Iqbal, why do you think that these uh, war hawks are holding sway in uh, perpetuating or promoting war, uh, conflict, rather than, uh, uh, rather than crafting peace? Is it, is it because uh, they think that there should be a unipo- unipolar world that is headed by the Western nations, or is there some other objective they're trying to achieve? You're absolutely spot on, Valid. It's their belief that it should be a unipolar world headed by the West. And when we say headed by the West, it's the cronies, the crony capitalists, the greedy elitists, right, headed by them. Because then what they can do is make lots of money by invading other countries, taking their resources, etc., because what have we seen over the last few decades? It's just the rich getting richer, and it's the military-industrial complex that has benefited the most. Even in this Ukraine war, right? I, I don't know, nearly 100 billion has gone in. And most American commentators, free-thinking, are saying that a lot of this money is actually going to the, into the pockets of the... Because, you know, the old weapons are going to Ukraine, and the new money that is being generated will go into their pockets. <laughs> And from politicians to the top business people, they're milking it, basically. And that's what they want to do continuously, milking it. <laughs> There's been a plan in the long term. Look, I'm not a Russian fan or a Chinese fan or anybody. But they, since they, they placed Yeltsin, you know, at the head of the Russian state, there's been a plan to basically take over Russia because it's got massive resources, some of the greatest resources on Earth. And then they can pocket all these resources, etc. And that has been the plan on Russia. It was the plan for Iraq. Clearly that has failed. It was the plan for Libya. And the countries are beginning to wake up and recognize that. And Russia is not a small country. It will not accept this sort of domination. And so with China, they want to create a multipolar world where, you know, whether you're Brazilian or whether you're Indian, whether you're Algerian, uh, Everybody plays a part in that and advances their culture and their economics and uh, does well. So either they're extremely greedy, honestly. And that, the West has offered the world many great things, but at the moment they are being destroyed by these neocon war orgs. Mm. Just, I just wanted to, add, uh, I wanted to ask, you know, you're also very confident when you say that Russia is going to win. Why do you think that when you think because the resources at the disposal of the West are far greater than what Russia would be able to muster? And if this war continues, then surely it's only the West that can win. Uh, I've followed this conflict in a lot of detail, as I did the Iraq and uh, other uh, conflicts uh, as well. And if you, the mainstream media want 
give you that narrative at all because they think, you know, Russia is falling apart, there are uh, armies falling apart, Putin's going to be deposed, which is an absolute nonsense. But if you look at the very basics and the land structure that has been taken by uh, the, the, the Russians, right, if you look at the uh, tactics being used, the, 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 this is an artillery-based war largely. It's not like the Iraq, you know, sending all the planes and bomb here, there, destroy everything, civilians. Into the uh, Russians are doing it in a very strategic manner, and their artillery far outguns the Ukrainians, and even the ammunition from the Western world is running out. And if you listen to people like retired Colonel Douglas McCraig, who was involved, by the way, in Desert Storm, as was Scott Ritter and many others, right, who are true military experts and retired but independent, they, they say so quite clearly that the propaganda, the media is basically just a mouthpiece, but they don't, they're not telling a realistic picture. And if you look at this city which you started, Bakhmut, now that is such an important city to take, and the Russians have basically surrounded it, right? It's going to be cut off. Once they take that over within the next week or so, so much of the land mass is open, the Russians can march to wherever they want. And they only recently started using their hypersonic missiles and also their airplanes. So once they go to full swing, Ukraine is finished. Mm. But, Dr. just moving on a little bit, um, we had, uh, you're talking about warmongering and uh, no avenues to peace or no no one's talking about peace. Uh, you attended the Peace Symposium last week here at the Battle for Two Mosque. Absolutely wonderful, Hassan, honestly. Yeah, and His Holiness gave a keynote address amongst a lot of ministers and MPs, etc. Uh, let's, let's listen to a little short clip from that speech, and then we'll ask you a few questions on that. In addition, we hold similar conferences and events all around the world seeking to bring people together, irrespective of their caste, creed, or color, under the banner of humanity, and strive to identify solutions to the problems faced in the world. Our motivation is for true and lasting peace to emerge so that mankind can save itself from self-destruction. Our objective is to raise awareness of the fact that the world stands at the precipice of disaster and to urge humanity to take a step back and consider our responsibilities, not only to the people of today, but also to our future generations. We hold such events so we can proclaim our firm conviction that only in peace lies the salvation of the world. Peace is the golden key to un unlocking the door to societal progress and development and ensuring that our future generations can thrive and prosper. Though we have long preached this message, it seems to have fallen upon deaf ears. I believe the fundamental reason is that that the vast majority of the world has turned away from God Almighty and consider materialistic gains and worldly pursuits to be their ultimate objective. It was due to such vain and 
covetous pursuit that mankind was dragged into two kilometers and harrowing world wars during the 20th century. Rather than learn from the horrors of the past, the world is once again engulfed by warfare and conflict. That was His Holiness, Azam Mr. Ramad, may Allah be his helper, uh, addressing the peace symposium uh, in amidst the company of ministers and world leaders uh, or political leaders. Dr. Iqbal, uh, a far cry from what you just quoted Macron saying, a far cry from what European heads of state, certainly the British uh, government heads are saying. Uh, His Holiness is talking about peace and learning lessons of the past, whilst the warmongers want to talk about destruction and defeat defeat of uh, Putin. What do you make of that? It was an absolutely amazing message, yes, and honestly, you know, um, I felt so proud as an Ahmadi Muslim sitting there and hearing that brave message, because that's what it was. It was somebody who was being honest and saying, look, uh, you know, I care for humanity. I worry about the future of humanity, of where this is heading. And the only way to talk about peace is not to put stupid conditions on and sit down and, you know, talk about the rights and wrongs. And that was just so reassuring. And I think a lot of the guests you'll have heard, uh, you know, we've seen the, seen the feedback from that peace symposium as well, agreed on that uh, as well. But there's, no, there's nobody brave enough. As an, in the UK, I mean, in, in America, you've got people like um, Professor Jeffrey Sachs and Professor Mershmer and, you know, Colonel Douglas uh, talking and saying some of these things. But in the UK, you hardly hear anybody talking in this manner apart from Azul, and I'm really worried about that. Jeremy Corbyn? Um, <laughs> Maybe? <laughs> I know, but you know what they say, they say about Corbyn and how they sideline him and everything, and this is the tragedy. This is the tragedy, yes, yes. I, yeah, I mean, I, I expected some major professor, you know, in the, uh, I, you know, I'm a Bradfordian, a very proud Bradfordian, we used to have a professor, Paul Rogers, who headed the Peace Studies Department, an international figure. Mm. And he used to speak out very openly, and you know he was a great analyst and very brave. Mm. But I was saying to our vice chancellor recently, since Paul retired, we've lost that as well, and I don't see anybody in the UK speaking out so loudly. Well, I I had a couple of guests with me. One was uh, a reverend, a uh, chaplain of uh, a public school, and a teacher mm. from there, and both of them asked me this question: that uh, why is this not covered? by the major press? Why is this not on the TV news? Uh, because they certainly felt that this is the sort of things we need to hear. Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's what you're saying, that it seems like there may be some voices here, but it's the media that won't allow it to be on it. Absolutely. I mean, I think we leave monitors the media a lot as well, and you'll agree <laughs> that they somehow just don't bring anybody... And I'm really at the moment. By the way, there's only Peter Hitchens from the media, media writers, right, in the Daily Mail, who dares to say this war is going in a stupid direction. Mm. And virtually everybody, and he gets absolutely pilloried, you know, in the mainstream media as a lonely figure. I mean, there are of course some left-wing writers, but you know. It's all run by right wing, all our media. So I, I tend to monitor both the written and the internet media, etc. 
and um, those voices are, are silenced. Uh, whereas in America, there's some prominent figures, yeah. and they do they do come up and say what needs to be said. And, and His Holiness did try to highlight some of the media. Um, Matthew Paris, for example, he quoted. Uh, as one of those who is giving this voice of wanting peace rather than wanting war. Uh, Dr. Iqbal, uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and uh, giving us your views on this very important topic. And uh, our My duty pleasure. yeah, our duty is to pray for peace, as His Holiness has reminded us, and to help people come back to God to reduce uh, uh, the wars that are taking place. Absolutely. We can only hope and pray and do our best, uh, uh, son. So Indeed. thank you for having me. No, no, thank you for joining us and giving us your views. Uh, very interesting discussion, mm. and uh, I think the Peace Symposium was a great success and some very poignant uh, points made by His Holiness. I was mm. trying to select some clips uh, for this mm, event. But there's uh, so much good stuff. I, I, this yeah. is exactly that. Yes. I, I, I felt like saying... Shall we put the whole speech yeah. on? <laughs> Obviously, mm. because of time, we could, and this is yeah. the best clip of, of the lot that yeah. I found. And in that well. clip, uh, uh, His Holiness was also echoing what uh, Dr. Iqbal said about material pursuits, yeah. material gain being the motivation. Yeah. And that should that is something that should be... It's, it's, it's all about yeah. resources yeah. and land, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Right, let's move on to our next uh, segment of the show, which is the community news and a chance for uh, Daniel Carlon to shout, uh, to shine uh, oh, on, a his on his knowledge. Yes, absolutely. New star, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Weekend World. Community News. وَإِذْ قَالَتِ الْمَلَائِكَةُ يَا مَرْيَمُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَاكِ وَطَهَّرَكِ وَاصْطَفَاكِ عَلَى نِسَاءِ الْعَالَمِينَ Chapter 3, verse 43 And remember when the angel said, O Mary, Allah has chosen thee and purified thee and chosen thee above the women of all peoples. A high regard for women in the Quran. Um, the Holy. This is one verse where Allah Almighty says that Mary is a role model for all women, of all peoples, for all generations. Um, and in the news, we hear much uh, opposition uh, or demeaning of Islam's rights of women. And in in, in the time where we are celebrating uh, Women's International Day. Uh, Daniel, it's, uh, Islam is always under attack, and particularly since 9-11, they have used women to try to uh, convey their propaganda or their uh, views. Because I remember during that time, uh, a lot was said about women wearing hijab, which had nothing to do with the war. Uh, France went on to ban the hijab, have we ever found a terrorist who was wearing a hijab to to put a bomb? No, but that was the issue. And so women were were being demeaned. Islamic women, Muslim women were being demeaned. Yes. And in, 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 in the time period that we're in, that we're celebrating Women's International Day, um, many questions have arisen. And I remember Khalifatul Masih Rabeh, the fourth caliph of the Muslim community, when he first came to England, he used to hold a lot of question answers in, uh, in Pakistan. And he said, uh, and uh, when he returned to Pakistan, uh, before he emigrated permanently, and he was asked the question that, how has the Western media been treating you? 
And he said, well, wherever I went, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and women's rights followed me everywhere. <laughs> so women's rights has certainly been something that is under contention in, in, uh, in Islam for the West. Yes. Okay? So there's a few questions I would like to ask you about women's rights, which are, have been raised in the past. Okay? First of all, polygamy is one very often question that is asked, is illegal in most Western countries. What does that mean for the Islamic injunction of polygamy? Has it got a place in Western society? That's the question. Yes, so polygamy, um, for our listeners first and foremost, uh, the Holy Quran permits men to marry up to four wives, right? That's okay. a permission. Yeah. Um, it's not an obligation. No. We have to clarify that. It's a permission. I mean, it's actually a limitation as well because before... Uh, the advent of Islam, there were men marrying more wives than that, and there was no limit placed upon them. In fact, in the Bible, David had 100 wives, if, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, here, this is a very interesting point here. The West doesn't allow polygamy, but Islam allows polygamy. Now, as Muslims living in the West, we have to follow the law of the land. Mm -hmm. So, how do we kind of uphold both laws without breaking either one of them? And an interesting way to do this is, okay, so if polygamy is illegal in the West, that's fine. A man can marry one wife, and that's fine, right? There's not, that's not illegal anyway. But if a man were to travel to an Islamic country or a country where polyg polygamy is not illegal and was to get his nikah done with another woman over there and return back to the West, then that is fine too. All that means is that under Western law, that second wife is not actually a wife, so legally she doesn't have those same rights as an, his first. So wife he would can have. he can bring her back, but not to declare her as a wife. Exactly. But if I'm not mistaken, the law also states that if you are from that country and you already had more than one wife, uh, there was a case in in matter where and it was an Ahmadi case, in fact, where the gentleman was able to bring his wife as his second wife. Right. Right. So there's a if you're already married and yeah. not come to this country and you want to bring them, then you can by the by law. Yeah. But you can't go and get a second marriage after having lived here. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Well, legally. Legally, yeah. According yeah. to yeah. Western yeah. law. Yeah. Well, according to Islamic law. So if a if a man was supposed to do that and he came back with another wife, Islamically, it's all fine. It's all halal. There's yeah. no issues with that. Right. Okay. Now, halal, halal meaning permissible. Permissible. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now the issue here is that um, if a, if if a woman has an issue with that, that's fine, um, because the Promised Messiah in Jashmai Marfath, one of his books, he actually um, discussed this whole point in length, and he mentioned how um, at the time of Nikah, a woman can put down a condition. She can lay down a condition and say that the man is not allowed to marry anyone else um, alongside with her, right? Mm. So he's not allowed to practice polygamy whilst she his wife. And if he does do that, then the contract of Nikah is abolished, right? So she gets a divorce from him. And and that's fine. And if a man and a woman are already married and a man looks for another wife and that wife doesn't want um, that man to be a polygamous person, then she all she has to do is not accept the marriage proposal. It's as simple as that, right? A question to really ask the Western audience here is that here in the West, a person is allowed to have a wife and also have a mistress or have um, relations with other women legally, right? Without marrying them. So and some superstars and celebrities promote that they they've got so many mistresses and or they've had so many mistresses exactly yeah. exactly so how is that any better than a man legally and lawfully marrying another woman who mm. he's 
he he has many rights upon her and she has many rights upon him as well mm. so it's not like he's just going to have his fun with her mm. and then just abandon her mm -hmm. uh, if he marries another woman he's responsible for her yeah. to feed her to clothe her and to you know look after her so isn't that better than having a mistress or a girlfriend or you know um, cheating on your and have on no your wife? and then and then and have no responsibilities as a result exactly and if nothing that brings a breakdown to society and we mm. see single mothers in abundance now yes. not that they're not doing a good work but it's not the perfect world in a, in a perfect world uh, where there's a husband and a wife a father and a husband to bring up a child brings about the best in society yes and as i mentioned before it's very simple if the woman is not happy with that arrangement then she can divorce the man yeah it's um, as simple as that i mean if the if the husband wants to marry a second wife that wife will also be in agreement to do so. So exactly. she's doing it out of her own will. Exactly. Is there a way of... Is, do, do, do Are women compelled to marry a second husband, a, a second, uh, be a second wife, without their wish? Can not at all. That? No, not at all. In fact, even... Um, to be the first wife of a of a man, yeah. um, they're not compelled to do so at all. Um, it, it's down to, to the, their decision, right? Yeah. So they can't be forced by their father or by their brother to mm. marry anyone mm. unless they're happy to do so. Now, this is something that's very important because we hear a lot about forced marriages. That's a cultural thing, not yes. an Islamic thing. Exactly. That's a very cultural thing, and we find a lot of that in... Um, the subcontinental culture especially. Mm. Um, but those are arranged marriages and some of those arranged marriages are uh, where the parents ask the two, um, you know, um, the husband and the wife, they are happy to go ahead with it. Mm. And that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, an arrangement being made in that sense. But an arranged marriage where they're both forced to against their own will, mm -hmm. that's not Islamic. Right. One other side question to this, if you don't mind, uh, is FGM, female genital mutilation, often is raised... Uh, in in Britain, it's, it's illegal. Uh, is that an Islamic uh, uh, tradition of of female being uh, having circumcision done, or is that only applied to men? It's it's not um, an Islamic injunction for women at all. At all. Um, it's only for men, and the reason it is for men, it's it goes a little bit further back in theology with Abraham, peace be upon him, the patriarchal prophet of. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, um, and that was his covenant with God Almighty. Mm. You know, there was, that was a physical sign of his contract with God Almighty. Right. And anyone following the way of Abraham, which we do as Muslims, yeah. um, men that is, would perform circum well, would would have would be circumcised when mm. they're when they're young. Had the Jews not been doing it, we, Islam would have been under the cosh for that as well. I would have thought, but thank thank the Jewish nation for, for also doing circumcisions mm. as well. Um, okay, uh, thank you. Uh, very enlightening. Uh, another question that is uh, raised is that the testimony of a woman is worth only half that of a man. Now here they, it says that we take a testimony from someone, if it's a man, one person is enough, where if it's a woman, you need two women to do it. So that means that the value of the woman is demeaned, is the argument. Half, half yeah. Can you explain that? Yes, so that comes from a verse where, uh, and I'll quote the translation, it's stated, O ye who believe, when you borrow one from another for a fixed period, then write it down, and let a scribe write it in your presence faithfully. Borrow in terms of finance uh, money. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And call or, two or, or, or any contract that you sign. Any contract that you yeah, sign, yeah. yes. And call two witnesses from among your men, and if not, if two men be not available, then a man and two women, of such as you approve as witnesses, so that if either of the two women should forget, then one may remind the other. Now, what's important to 
note here is that this is a very specific situation, right? The Holy Quran has, in many other verses in the Holy Quran, um, mentioned uh, giving testimony and bearing witness as well. And there has been no distinction between a man and a woman. Um, you know, there, there has been made no distinction that in that situation there should be two women or three women or five women that are equal to one man. No, it's only in this very specific um, situation, which, as you mentioned, is a monetary situation or one where a contract is being signed that two women are supposed to be um, uh, witnesses. And the reason for that is, I mean, we can look at the theology, but just look at the world practically as well. There's a book which was, um, it, it was a popular science book which was published. It was called Why Men Don't Listen and Women Can't Read Maps <laughs> by Alan and Barbara Pease, right? And it, it's a known fact. It's an established and accepted fact that there are differences between men and women. Right, they both have their strengths. They both have their weaknesses. Yeah. Right, not not that many women can read the map, yeah. <laughs> and many men do listen. Yeah. but generally speaking, it it it, it can be applicable. Yeah, yeah. look, here's a confession. Yeah. I, I'm not good at reading maps, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so as a general rule, you know, um, all, all this is doing is just proving that there are fundamental differences, right, which we accept. And it's just and that Islam recognizes that that men and women are equal, yes. but they have different roles in society. Exactly, yeah? Yeah. and their weaknesses and their strengths complement each other's. Yeah. Um, so that's why they're a perfect fit, right? Yeah. Now, what we need to remember here is that um, when the Quran in this specific verse that we're talking about, it doesn't mean that women are deficient or they're um, they're forgetful or they're you know half the worth of a man intelligence-wise or psychologically, mm. right? The point is that their social and cultural situation um, has been and is still in most countries very different to men, right? For example, um, since Islam emerged, right, and if we look at you know the world in a general sense as well, women were less literate than men, right? Um, which is why they would usually have to rely on memory uh, for their witness right, witnesses, right? And moreover, since they were less literate they were less involved in professions as well right so they were less involved in uh, monetary transactions for example right and that's why this specific verse is talking about monetary tra transactions mm. women in general right especially in patriarchal societies which for almost throughout all of history most societies have been and even arguably at the moment we're in patriarchal societies as well it's easier for men to put pressure on women, right? Especially in these financial situations. So by having two women there, it makes it difficult for a single man to put pressure on those women, right? Mm. So essentially, what we're seeing here is that by having two women in this specific verse, they're actually being protected, mm. right? And they're being helped um, because that way no one can put any pressure on them. And also because they haven't been... There's a cultural and social difference. They haven't been historically as involved in monetary transactions as men have right. been um, in that way this can help them but again as I mentioned in, in, other, in any other scenario in, in the Holy Quran wherever um, you know um, witnesses have been referred to there has been no distinction and even the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and his successors they we have narrations of them accepting um, a single woman's testimony mm. as well. Mm. Will it would it be fair to say then that uh, because that that in uh, that time that period of time, where as Daniel is saying that women 
were less literate. Mm. And that was a cultural thing, nothing to do with because they're women, they can't. it's just a cultural thing that women had other responsibilities and they weren't involved in the day-to-day management of finances, running of things or d- doing the dealings. Uh, and there was no written documents. Therefore, the, me- uh, the because the men were involved with these sort of things, they, their recollections would be better uh, because they deal with these things and they would know what it's about, whereas women might not be aware. So therefore, having two women, you would have to have two contracts. But in today's world, with written contracts, you might not need that. Yes, you might not need that. And uh, at the tail end of what Rani uh, was saying, that testimonies of single women uh, w- were accepted later mm, on. Yeah. So it shows that where you have a culture where women are um, educated up to a standard where they can um, assert uh, their their uh, authority or their representation, mm. then uh, a single woman's uh, testimony is, is good, enough. good enough. And it is a single woman's testimony. The other one is just supporting, yes. if I understand it correctly, the uh, the one the the first the first uh, the first lady. Yeah. And and in, in and in no way is it trying to say that men are more perfect than women. No. Right? It's yeah. just we like to think so. <laughs> we like to think we are, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> our, our wives put us put us, put us in our places very quickly. Yes, yes. One last question for today. Uh, and we'll continue with a lot more on these sort of topics with you, Daniel, if you don't mind. Why do men and women mix in congregational worship during Hajj and Umrah? I've been taking people around the mosque here with the, on Peace Symposium, and I had some visitors at my mosque in Noor Mosque in Crawley where I was telling them that men and women pray separately, as I did here, but yet in Hajj they, mix, they pray together. What's the... What's the, what's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so it's important to remember that um, first and foremost, even during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, in the mosques and in congregational um, prayers, there was a separation between men and women. Men were at the front and then women were at the back. In fact, even children, um, you know, consisted of a line between the men and women. So it was men, children and then women. So there was always a separation in that, in that sense. Um, but as far as Hajj and Umrah are concerned, where... Um, the tawaf or so compilation of the Kaaba mm. is being performed. Yeah, um, women they've performed historically they've performed tawaf alongside men, right? Now at at one point in early Islamic history, this was just soon after um, the Holy Prophet sallallahu had passed away. Ibn Hisham, who was the governor of Mecca at the time, he decreed that women um, cannot perform tawaf with men, right? Now Utbah bin Abi Rabia, he was uh, alive at the time and he was alive during the time of the Prophet as well. And he said that, how can you forbid a thing which the Prophet had allowed, right? And someone asked him, can, can you swear an oath that you've seen this? And he said, yes. And he said, was this before um, the injunction of uh, Burda, of uh, the Islamic veil, or afterwards? And he said it was afterwards. And he gave an example. He said, Aisha, the wife of the Prophet, وسلم, she used to perform tawaf um, alongside men as well, but she used to do it at, at a distance, right? Mm. It wasn't like she was walking with them. She was... Um, in that same space, but at a distance, right? right? And even a woman um, said to Aisha, let's go kiss the black stone, which is part of the ritual of the Hajj. And she said, you can go. Um, I'll just carry on from, from where I am. Because obviously there were a lot of men around that, that stone. So um, she didn't want to go there. In fact, it's uh, even when they wanted to go inside the Kaaba, which was very common in those days, and when there were less people as well, especially, um, they would actually wait for the men to come out and then they'd go inside. Mm. So there was some sort of segregation. There was some sort of difference. But um, the Kaaba is, is, is different to all other mosques in the way where there's a 
huge ritual going on, the Hajj or the Umrah, and where it's pretty much impossible to separate um, the two genders completely. So in in a way, it's just um, dis- the distance is is there. Even I, I've been I've been there myself. Um, you know, naturally, we keep our distance from the ladies, and the ladies mm. keep their distance from us. Well, well, when you're in a large crowd, you have to be extra cautious, etc. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I presume, really, that uh, the 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 Hajj is a unique occasion, and uh, circumstances and the practicalities of it uh, demand it uh, mm. that it has to be like that. Otherwise. Uh, it might not be, but it it safeguards women generally. The the, the, the segregation between men and women. Uh, the West is struggling a lot yes, with this yes. issue. On the way, yeah. men are taking advantage of this, yes. and women are not safe from it. And in no. Islam, that protection has been provided. No, the Me Too movement is all about that, isn't it? Really, Indeed. complaining about uh, the misogyny and the uh, the unwarranted attention of men. But like you said, I think the the Hajj is, is the solemni- solemn- solemnity of the of the okay, occasion yes. is such that uh, um, rules um, are relaxed. Mm. But still, there is a degree of separation uh, that is practiced, uh, perhaps more than it is in in mosques. But even in mosques, if you if we do find that there is only one area where we can pray, then we would have men and women in the same area in the same location. But uh, separated, like just like you would do uh, to to an extent in Hajj, yeah. where women are um, there is a there is a gap, there is gap between yeah, the two. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I would have thought, Daniel, that uh, when you go to Hajj, you're all clad in a similar fashion, so very modest in, in terms of your clothing, etc. Whereas if you go to a mosque, people dress in different ways, yes. uh, so you don't have that. Uh, physical attraction that you might be tempted with in in, in a mosque in Hajj everyone is very similarly exactly. dressed up so yeah. it hides some of that in a mosque also remember that um, when we pray and there are a lot of people will come before the congregational prayers mm. I mean we're going to be um, in different positions mm. and certain positions uh, are ones that you don't want uh, meant to be distracted by. You no, know, they, correct. <laughs> the bowing down and the prostrations. <laughs> yes, and you the, don't have that in Hajj. No. You know, you're just ah, walking. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's so when you, yeah. Maybe yeah. that's another point uh, to be added. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I think there's lots to be discussed. I think we should be discussing women's issues a lot on our show. And uh, maybe, Daniel, we can continue with these themes for now yes. and add more topics to this. And uh, then we'll see how we develop from there as well. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, one person who's been to Hajj several times or to, to Umrah is our next guest, Shahid Khan. Assalamu alaikum, Shahid. Yes, uh, it's not been too long ago since you last went, about a year or so ago. I think you were in uh, doing your Umrah again. Indeed, yes. I, I was very uh, fascinated by the talk that you had about the different sexes and that. But like you mentioned, all these presenters as well, that there is a separation with regard to they don't pray alongside each other, like has been mentioned with, uh, with also the historical aspect as well that has been mentioned. Mm. So there is a separation, and like you said, Hajj and Umrah are so much different to normal mosque in any event. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a great experience, as you, you, you've often told me, and uh, I think Zishan seems to have been there as well. But moving on to things in Britain now, a uh, very hot topic about uh, what's been going on with BBC. Just your initial thoughts on that. Um, what do you make of the whole story and uh, the abandonment of uh, watching Match of the Day without presenters, etc.? 
Well, to be honest with you, I am inclined to think of the fact that the real issues are being uh, sort of uh, sidelined at the mm. moment with this uh, Gary Lineker's uh, tweet and so forth. Whilst this is something to do with sports as such, I believe that this has gone out of all proportion, to be honest with you. And I think this has just taken overtaken the government's policy with regard to the asylum policy. And that's all been uh, disregarded, to be honest with you. And this, this tweet has become the center stage. And unfortunately, uh, the real issues are just being sidelined, unfortunately. So in terms of that, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to be said with regard to the impartiality of the BBC. I mean, it, it appears that as and when they feel like they want to uh, sit back on that and say that this is impartiality is being breached and so forth. And at the time, that is not the case. So I think they're picking and choosing their fights in this respect, I feel. So they've they've misjudged this situation altogether. uh, Indeed. And and do you agree with Nadine Doris then that Lineker should be sacked? (laughs) Well, to be honest with you, Lineker is a freelance uh, broadcaster, to be honest with you. And uh, whilst he's saying that uh, he's not a full-time employee of BBC, uh, the BBC can just... Uh, uh, finish his contract. Uh, finish his, absolutely, contract as such. But they're allowed to do that because of the real the fan base and so forth, I would say, and the media that I think has just uh, concentrated on this fact at the moment. Mm. And this might go against... Um, well, I think... Uh, whilst the uh, sacking would be something that would be uh, outrageous at this stage, I think. Uh, but also, he doesn't seem to be want to back down as well. So that's another factor as well in, in this uh, debate. There was one argument that uh, I heard this morning that uh, maybe uh, it was from from an ex BBC programmer. Um, he was on Laura Lunesburg this morning that uh, maybe 20 years or 24 years doing match of the day his time is probably coming to an end <laughs> <laughs> well uh, to be honest with you I don't uh, think very much of the pundits in any event of, of the World Cup and even yeah. in the match of the day for that matter if they were that good why aren't they not managers themselves, to be honest with you, and to be pointing out mistakes of others and so forth, all very well sitting in the announce here and pointing this out. Yes. So I'm not in great fear. I mean, the fact that Gary Lineker was a player of some great stature and stature is all very well. Mm. But I'm sure that others can actually take his place quite easily. And I, I can think of several names, I don't want to mention them, but I'm mm. sure they would want to take that place anyway. Uh, but he's become the highest paid uh, presenter. I mean, that's ridiculous from, from my point of view. I mean, he has done really well, let's not say that. But uh, on the other hand, I'm sure that there are other presenters who would just be as uh, capable as him in any event. It's just that do you think, do you think As- our Asan will be good enough to take his place? Sorry, who was that? Do you think that Asan will be good enough to take his place? Me. <laughs> he's, he's, he's trying to promote me. I'm, I'm going to make with him my agent. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it, it's something that's just hyped up and it just seems like a lot of managers, to be honest with you. It's yeah. the same situation with them. They get sacked for one um, team and then follow, uh, go to another club, and, and the same managers become the same. So, to be honest with you, this has become a coaster ride in, other, in, in terms of managership, so for yeah. football clubs. 
Uh, and I, mm. uh, there's no reason why the presenters can't do the same. Yeah, I, w- I would reject it on the grounds, as Shai said. <laughs> oh. it's, a, it's a hyped-up position. I wouldn't want to be in that position. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to the football. Solidarity. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Solidarity. Let's move on to the football. Uh, some interesting results. Uh, Liverpool losing and uh, Chelsea winning and Tottenham winning. Yes, indeed. I mean, the roller coaster, Sarah, you mentioned that the word roller coaster, but just imagine last week, Arsenal, Liverpool were talking about the, the height that they had about a 7 0 victory over Manchester United. Uh, I mean, obviously, that was a big derby game and all the rest of it, that history goes on that fixture. But week after that, for, and then falling to bring brought down to earth, to be honest with you, against the bottom club in the league. Mm. So. All things are not right at the moment. That, uh, well, on the other hand, Premiership teams are like that at the moment, and Arsenal are seen to be the outstanding team at the moment with a five points lead and having a game against uh, Fulham today. Uh, so they, they should restore that five point lead. I mean, potentially Manchester, five, so yeah, yeah, potentially five. Okay, so yeah. It's the win today, yeah. If the Manchester City obviously had that, I mean, they had to rely on a penalty to beat yesterday's team. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no easy games, as we have said all along, that all the teams are in this respect. And some of the teams are playing really good football. And I, the Leeds game yesterday that I saw is Leicester. Mm. Uh, and to come back from that kind of thing, and Leeds are playing so well. But end of the day, the results matter. And Tottenham, you mentioned, I mean, they hadn't scored in three, three or four games, I think, and then to come back and win. Uh, so, and, and, and every likelihood that Tottenham could end up fourth this year, I can't see the others catching up. At the up. moment, I I would say there are Liverpool. Perhaps I wouldn't say favourites, but I think depending as to how Tottenham did well last year at the end of the uh, end of the season, I think that's when they picked uh, Arsenal. Hmm. Uh, but it's just that team who the team that puts a few uh, shows together, and that's it. Yeah. And the fact that they're also Champions League might be a factor in this point in terms of other teams having to play still in Europe, and that midweek game as well might cost them. Yeah, uh, moving on to the Champions League, uh, are you surprised that uh, with all their stars, uh, PSG actually uh, lost to Bayern Munich and are really effectively out, aren't they? Well, they are yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. They are, they are out. out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think you, you're absolutely right. I mean, money doesn't buy everything. They keep mentioning the fact that some of the clubs, including Tottenham, have not spent well in the past. That doesn't mention, it doesn't really equate to the fact that they are going to win, like, PSG here has uh, been a fact, uh, despite all their uh, riches and that, they're still not able to win it. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think it's the team that gels on the day. And also the track history is, I mean, like we mentioned about Real Madrid in the past, the fact that they never know how when it, when they've lost a game. And that's the factor in that uh, the track record also is a great factor, I think, in terms of the players having done it in the past. And it just keeps on going. Hmm. Do you think uh, that Bayern are favourites or do you think uh, Real Madrid are going to retain their trophy? I think uh, Bayern probably, uh, well, there's hardly anything to choose between the two, to be honest with you, absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Bayern, a team that uh, have been had plain sin, let's put it that way, rather than Real Madrid have had their ups and downs. But uh, I, just moving on to the cricket, uh, you've been to South Africa. Just for our listeners, we didn't fund your travel, by the way. 
the voice of Islam did not run your trip. But uh, you. By the way, yeah. <laughs> I must mention yes. that I was also a BBC freelancer one time. Not that it paid me a great deal, oh. but ah. anyway, this trip was just by the by. I wanted to watch the ground, not not the match itself. I turned up at two grounds. Yes. And both of them, you could just walk into the ground with having paid just five pounds to get into a ground. Unlike this was a World Cup, and women's World Cup, no doubt. But yeah. Uh, Unlike in England, where you can hardly get a, a ticket, uh, and also in absolutely any of the World Cup rights, it would be in terms of 50, 60 pounds minimum, mm. and if the, the match is sold out. But this was a totally different kind of experience whatsoever in Test cricket. Yes. And the fact that South Africa were playing against the West Indies in the past, I'm sure that they would have had crowds much bigger than this. But there's so much cricket, and uh, in terms of franchise cricket, I think that Test cricket is uh, really on a height into nothing. And also the fact that the the schedules are such that the match started on, on a Tuesday and the, not even the weekend was included and so Test cricket really has to rethink the whole thing, the scenario of the schedules and so forth if they are to attract Test cricket back into before. Yeah, there are very few Test series which will see full crowds now, I'm afraid, because of what you just said, uh, the, the different forms of cricket which is attracting people's money, isn't it? Indeed. Okay, uh, Shai, thank you very much for uh, sh- sharing your thoughts and your views and as ever, uh, no, uh, information about uh, what's going on and how things will pan out in the Premiership uh, football. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right, gentlemen, uh, we're coming to the end of our show. Uh, Daniel Walid, thank you very much for co-hosting. Thank you to Dr. Iqbal and Shai Khan for giving us their contributions and to Zishan in our tech office and to our listeners in particular for listening to the Weekend World Show with us. You are listening to the Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, online and on mobile. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.